Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to Who the Fuck? A show that explores the power of human connection and the profound resilience of the human spirit through compassionate conversations that help you better understand yourself so you can live with the sense of peace, purpose, and joy that you deserve. Each episode offers a safe space for guests to share intimate details of their personal journey and lessons learned along the way as we all seek to answer life's most important question. Who the fuck am I? Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce and you're listening to Who the Fuck. Today I'm sharing the mic with Alex Regan and Alex is an interfaith minister, speaker, and spiritual coach who uses his intuitive wisdom to help guide others towards their own inner knowing. And Alex is also the author of What Needs to Be Said, a book published by Hay House. If our conversation resonates with you, check out the show notes to see where you can get your copy. In the meantime, we have a great episode lined up for you. So let's get the ball rolling. Welcome to the show, Alex. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here with you. Our last conversation off camera was awesome. And I'm super excited for us to get to chat today and talk about whatever comes up and my book and everything else under the sun. Yeah, absolutely. I walked away from our conversation feeling so enlightened and seen. And it really, I think, makes the case for anybody who's going to pick up your book because the accolades it's gotten already prior to even being released are really tremendous from people in the industry and other authors. So I thought a good place to start might really be to talk a little bit about what really was like the impetus for writing your book and how have you come from where you were to where you are now with that? But all starts from, you know, I grew up in a very evangelical conservative family and, you know, as a little kid, I really bought into that. I really loved church. I really loved Jesus. Like I was pretty excited about all that stuff because it's like really all that I knew to the point that one time in New York City, I like stopped and talked to one of those like soapbox preachers for like 20 minutes when I was eight years old or something. I just really was like all about it. And my parents were like, we have to keep moving, you know, let's go. <laughs> so that was like, such a hard thing in a way, because I really believed it and loved all of that stuff so much. But as I got towards puberty, preteen age years, you know, I started to know for sure. I mean, when I was pretty little, I knew that I thought I was a boy. I mean, I didn't have the language for that. Um, as I was born assigned female at birth and everyone, you know, made all those assumptions about me. But like, I knew even I can remember as young as six, like knowing, like when my mom was like, oh, you you can't play in the front yard with your shirt off in the sprinklers, you know, like your brother and the other kid. And I was just kind of like, why? You know, like yeah. I really just I didn't understand. I looked at them. I looked I was like, we look the same. This doesn't make sense. So it was like a lot of weird sort of two sided things where it was like, you know, our family's beliefs and my beliefs about things were on one side. And then what I kind of knew was over here on the other side. And that was pretty confusing and created a lot of like sort of disassociation for me inside of my own self. You know, then by the time I got to the preteen years, I knew I was attracted to girls. I was just like, yeah. I mean, I get that. I, I, that resonates. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. I just was like, this is not confusing at all. Like I really did understand that. And I dated boys as well, like all through, you know, junior high, high school, whenever you start going on little dates and things like that. But It always felt like it was a show I was putting on in a way, you know, this is what you're supposed to be doing. It's so funny that you said that. So I actually in therapy yesterday just had this conversation about how 
I feel like so much of what I did when I was younger and it's starting to, it has manifested in my adult life, especially related to the fact that I want to work full time for myself and I have really forever and I'm still working for other companies that I went back to my childhood and started looking at, okay, well, I kind of always was doing what you're supposed to do because I in school did all the extracurriculars so then you can go to college and then when you go to college you do all the things so then you can get the job the thing that really threw a wrench in that plan was the fact that i did all the stuff in high school i did all the stuff in college and then i graduated when the economy crashed and they were like oh sorry none of that means anything and so it's like you start to really question this was the first time yesterday honestly alex i was like i don't think i've ever thought about it like this like i really was proven that you can do everything you're quote supposed to do. And that doesn't mean that it's right for you. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that because we find ourselves in these communities or circumstances that are maybe a bit predictated for how that outcome is going to be. But at the end of the day, as you're saying, we do have some sort of knowing that internal, that visceral sense of this works for me. This doesn't work for me. This feels right. This doesn't feel right is something that nobody other than yourself can really explain. I mean, and that actually goes into what you just said about our guidance system is part of what was a driving force in writing the book as well. Because I think what happens is our, we all have an inner guidance system. Like I, I talk about it in the book, I call it the Jack Sparrow compass. I don't know if you've seen Pirates of the Caribbean, but so I talk about that, that it's like, one of my favorite thing, I love to watch movies and then try to find like a spiritual like twist on it. Like and that. so when I was watching that one day, I realized, oh my God, that's what we all have. We have a Jack Sparrow compass. And the point of that is that all through the movies, they kind of make fun of him because they're like, your compass is broken. It doesn't even work. It doesn't point to true north, which is, I think, what everyone's normally telling us. True north yeah. is what you should be doing, what society says you should be doing. Yeah. But the best part of his compass is it points to what he wants most and what is like in his heart. And I think that's what we all sort of get trained out of. We all have that innately within us. Mm-hmm. But we get trained out of that. We get told, no, follow this direction, follow the church's direction, follow your teacher's direction, your parents, all of these other guidance systems. And I did that for so long, you know, just doing what I should be doing. By the time I got into college, I was just like, I can't keep doing this. I knew it was going to kill me if I didn't just make a drastic change and do what I needed to do for me. So, you know, that kind of was the precursor to all of it. And the book is sort of built around its three parts, which is the origin, the struggle and the emergence. So the origin is all like my early childhood, some of like my early teens and into like right before I came out. And then my, the struggle part is all about coming out all of sort of like the aftermath of that and, you know, leading into a lot of depression, anxiety, some addiction, Mm -hmm. lots of fun stuff in there. And then sort of how I emerged from all that. I love that you laid the book out that way too. It's part of what I'm really looking forward to in reading it, because I feel like that's something that's so relatable to all people, regardless of what the lived experience is. We all have that origin story. And like you said, our origin is so much around who we know ourselves to be. And then also the side of it that is essentially pre-configured based on where you're born into, honestly. And I think that part of what can be so challenging with that is acknowledging 
as adults, what we knew to be true when we were younger. And as you said, we didn't maybe have the words for it, or we didn't understand what those feelings were telling us. And then, so right. when you get into the second, was the second, the emergent, or sorry, the struggle. Second struggle. Yep. So you get into the struggle and I feel that too. Like I was probably about nine when I knew that I was gay internally. And yeah. then I dated guys and I had crushes on girls and then I'd break up with guys and then I would never date a girl. <laughs> and yep. I, because it was, while it wasn't long ago, it feels like a lifetime ago because 20 years, 25 years, I'm 37 now. So it's like, people were not as accepting. It was very much a faux pas. If you're going to join the gay straight alliance, are you kidding me? Like, I'm not going to put myself out there and have people be able to see very clearly that I'm in my mind at that point, kind of a target for any sort of ridicule. And so when I started really owning my own experience, and when I came out in college, it was still sort of in drips and drabs, and I was trying to figure out how to tell people. And then once I got really comfortable with who I was, it required me to be really honest, not just with myself, but also with my family. And that drove a little bit of a wedge between myself and my parents initially. They were never, I would never say they were unaccepting in the sense that there was no sense of we're going to disown you or you don't belong right. in this family. There was never trying to change me or anything like that. But it was like, you made this more about you and not about what I've been dealing with for a lifetime that I've now just come to terms with that I can communicate to you. So do you feel like for you, especially growing up in an evangelical environment, that was even more challenging to kind of make those conversations happen? Yeah, definitely. And in all truth, they really haven't happened. I mean, that's sort of the irony of it. There's not really been a lot of talking in my experience with my parents. You know, there mm -hmm. was like sort of my senior year of college, I did quote unquote, come out to them. You know, I told them I'm attracted to girls. That was all I could eke out because I didn't know how to even say the word gay to them or queer or any of them. And I guess, you know, we didn't use queer back then in the same way that we all do now. Yeah, but, you're um, totally right. We were, Nicole and I were just talking about that. We're like, we reclaimed that one for the better. Definitely. No <laughs> doubt. That was a hard part is there wasn't a lot of quality communication. As soon as I said it, it was very much like, you know, well, don't worry, we can take you to a place that can help you with that. They immediately kind of went to the, we'll send you to, you know, a, now my brain is losing the language for it because like kind I don't of like even, a conversion camp, conversion therapy. Yeah, exactly. And it was like, as soon as I went, no way, I'm not doing that. Then they knew it was like, oh, this is no. And they just shut down. My mom stormed out of the room, slammed the door, you know, and then it, it escalated from there. That night later, she called me. It was like, you ruined my life. So again, making it about them. And well, that's like about also, I think a little bit of a generational thing too, when I look at it. And I always used to hate when my mom would say, this is generational. I kind of felt like it was a cop out, but I read parts of these books, like, oh gosh, what's it called? Children of Emotionally Immature Parents or something like mm. that. And it was so interesting to me because it gave me a lot of grace for them in understanding that as much as we didn't have the words or the ability to understand what we were experiencing, to some extent, them even less so because yeah, they definitely. A, didn't have the exposure that we had, but B, even if they did, they weren't taught how to manage those emotions. So in those experiences with our parents, for example, it's I think a parent now in a lot of cases, obviously not all. I look at my sister or my friends, and if one of their kids came out to them, it would be about their child coming out to them, not right. about their response to their child right. coming out to them. And I right. feel like that's quite the emotional 
dynamic shift from the sort of hierarchical perspective of a family where now you see people trying to look at it from the perspective of a child who's communicating these needs instead of shutting that down. Because what you're saying, right, is that there was essentially a block on what you could say or what you could talk about. Because even if that wasn't explicitly stated, the response told you what you needed to know. And I had that same experience with my parents where it was like, don't ask, don't tell. But then it also feels like you're not explicitly disregarding me in a way that's hurtful and overt, but it's still explicit in that you won't have a discussion about it. You won't even just kind of sit with the discomfort that you have so I can find comfort for myself. Right. Yeah, definitely. That's never been part of my experience in the 25 years since then. (laughs) So with regard to your book, when you were writing it, did you have anything particular in mind that you were hoping to help people experience as the impact of reading it? Or do you feel like it was more of an organic experience for you? And then what came out of it is in some way, ultimately what you wanted from it. (laughs) Part of it is that we often all think that we're so different. Sometimes people otherize each other. Obviously, we think based on the color of our skin or our sexual orientation or gender identity, religion, culture, et cetera, et cetera. We really look to like kind of otherize people. And I think my hope as the book developed further and further was that people would actually see themselves in my story and that they would recognize that while someone might pick it up and might think, oh, what do I have in common with some trans guy who's an interfaith minister? Like, this is not for me. And like, I would want to challenge people to say, I dare you to read it in a way, you know, because I think that one of the most beautiful things about the truth in all of us is that we have so much more in common than we ever realize. And we are all connected to oneness. We all feel the same emotions. We all feel like we want to belong. We want to feel worthy. We want to be valued, respected, loved. It feels obvious and very basic. And somehow we're incapable of executing on that effectively. (laughs) A thousand percent. Yes. I mean, and that doesn't make sense, um, but that's where we really struggle a lot. And so I think that's partly my hope. One of the endorsements I got from the wonderful Sonia Choquette, who's another Hay House author, was that basically she said, you'll see yourself in this book. And that was like one of the most just validating experiences for me. That's what I wanted, you know, yeah. is for people to realize they could see themselves. And I've done several speaking engagements in the last couple months, you know, one of which where I did have, I had a woman chime up in the group who said, you know, I'm like a, a middle-aged I think she identified as lesbian and she's like, I really see myself in your story. And it was like, it surprised her even in a way, you know, because she was, I think, even though she was very open to me being trans, you know, and having an issue with it or anything, but this light bulb that went on in her mind, like, oh, I really see myself in your story. It's interesting too, because I think it was maybe the same day or the day before you and I spoke initially for our intro call, I had this other really amazing call and I came out of the calls being like, this is what's right with the world. Everybody doesn't suck. I promise there's good people out there and they're all really trying, you know? (laughs) And I have this very firm belief that there's power in numbers. And the other guest had said to me, there's this idea that when you read a book or see somebody else's experience, that it either acts as a mirror or a window. And then I spoke to you and we were talking about your book and I thought, oh my gosh, it's perfect. It's exactly what it's like, right? You're not saying you have to look at this and say, 
Alex's story is exactly my story. You might feel like parts of Alex's story resonate with me and feel similar to my own lived experience. You might also read the book and have a completely objective view of what your life has been and what this memoir exposes, but still be able to really glean something from it. Because in my opinion, the people who can probably benefit at the very least the same, if not more, from paying attention to other people's stories who are not like them or their lived experiences are not like theirs, is this is how you create empathy. You show people what those experiences are so they can observe it, they can sit with it, they can process it. And I think the fact that it's a book is helpful, right? Because we can put something down and come back to it. We can dive through the entire thing if we want to, if we're feeling super engaged, but you get to take that content and consume it at a pace that feels right for you. And so as with most things, if you feel like it's maybe a lot to take on because you're now processing things in a different way than you would have previously, sit with that. Let yourself sit with that. Embrace what it is that you're experiencing when you're consuming the content, because the more that you give yourself space with somebody else's story, in my experience, I find that you just have such a stronger ability to connect to it, as you said, even if it's not to say this is the same, it shines light on these parts of ourselves that need a little bit of nurturing. Like it's to me, it's part of that personal evolution to be able to and to want to hear from other people and understand their experiences. So, like when you yeah. are sharing with people what your book is about and how you got to this point, you're obviously getting really good feedback on it. Is that something that you feel is kind of a new experience for you to be able to receive that? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I'm just trying to think about my experiences overall. I guess, you know, there haven't always been a lot of that type of feedback in my experience. In a funny way, this book is like yet another version of coming out. It's like, how many times, you know, can I do this? However many times somebody's reading it, honestly, it's (laughs) just happening on repeat. (laughs) Yeah, totally. That's a good point. Now at this point, this is going to just be a constant repeat. It's like a DVR, just keep playing it over and over. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you catch something different every time. (laughs) Totally, totally. Yeah, so I guess it is amazing to sort of see that. And I think it will be exciting. You know, there is that bit of angst that I feel that there could certainly be some backlash from this just based on where we are right now in the world and what the heck is um, going on. But I also have this sort of anticipation of I look forward to even my friends and close people in my life. Very few people have read it. Some of my best friends haven't read it yet. And so it will be fun to see that and see how it like moves people and touches people because the further it developed in the editing and the more close it got to like its full completion, Mm -hmm. you know, it became its own living, breathing entity. It wasn't even just like mine anymore in a way. It was like my life of all the people who've touched it, all the people who've participated in the my growth in the stories of what has happened, but also just the ways that my editor and I worked through it, the ways that my editor at Hay House and I worked through it. Everyone's heart is now in it too. So I'm like so excited to just see it sort of be birthed into the world and what really comes from it. Because every time I've read it through, I've just been like, God, that's good. Nope. And not like out of an ego way, but just out of this way of 
that it's not just from me. You know, there's so much of it that's really channeled from my guides, from the divine. And it's not also even just my story. I mean, one of the things I want to just swing back around to that people seeing themselves in my story is partly because what I don't just do is give you the surface level, like X happened in my life, but I have excavated it to like try to say, yes, this surface level thing happened, but I went underneath this to find out what was really beneath what happened and transpired. Like I did healing work, whether it was through therapy, spiritual practices, spiritual modalities, shamanism, seminary, like a million things that I have you know, done for myself. And then I gave practices. There's like a workbook built into it. That's like, okay, here's what I did. Here's a practice you can try that's similar mm-hmm. that might also help you get under some of the things that have gotten stuck in your experience and that are your stuck places. That's also my hope is that it helps people like go through their own emergence, get through and pass their own struggle and to, you know, heal some of their own origin stories. There are a few things that I want to take from that and unpack. The first that I want to say is I think it's really astute to make the point that it was this excavation because first of all, it gives just such a good visual of what it means to really dive into your own shit. (laughs) And knowing that you don't necessarily know what you're going to find, there's some ambiguity there. There's also a little bit, I think, at least in my own experience, there's a little bit of fear there. And as you said, sort of the angst of it, because the hardest part for me in my own healing journey is being faced with the things that I kind of knew, but I didn't didn't want to deal with. Yeah. And what I've learned over the years is really, those are going to sit with you for as long as you don't acknowledge them. So you may as well acknowledge it and then see if it's something that dissipates or something that you need to maybe address with more attention or differently. And the yeah. that relates to what you said around your own journey and the different practices and modalities that you've tried to see what resonates with you, to see what works for you, and to be able to combine those things in the way that worked for you to get you where you are. I listened to a very brief interview that you had done. You had made note of the fact that part of it is just being willing to experiment with those things for yourself. And when you were going through that process and you were leaving this evangelical lifestyle and you were trying to find your footing, it sounds like, What was it like for you with, I guess, trying to architect your life the way you wanted it to be, which required you to sort of demolish what was? Yeah, multiple times, I'll say, because I think that like when I left, so when I left after coming out, so, so I came out, it went really badly. Let me just say, I actually was in the final year of my senior year of school. So my brother and I devised a plan that I was like, maybe I better tell them I'll try again. Because like, I literally was like afraid they were going to just be like, we're not paying the last semester of tuition. And so I kind of was like, I'll try again. Let's just smooth things over. So I kind of crash landed, finished school, moved out of state. And I was going to tell them by letter, okay, now I'm for real out. But my cousins actually outed me to my parents before I was able to. So it kind of exploded in a really, really ridiculously, just like uh, the end of a fireworks show, you know, it was just all kind of exploded. And so a lot of my church community, I got calls from people like, we can't be your friend anymore. Like, you didn't have to fucking call me to tell me that. Like, just just don't be my friend anymore, dude. Like, you're aware that people ghost each other, right? Like, you could have just done that. 
Yeah. Even in the early 2000s, we knew what that was. Okay. Just don't call me ever again. But it was just the most obscene. I mean, some of my friends were like, you basically can't be our kid's godparent anymore. You know, just ridiculous stuff. So it was like everything exploded so spectacularly that I really, in order for self-preservation, just had to get rid of it all. Like Mm -hmm. I had to be like, I hate God. I hate Christianity. Like I'm no longer a Christian. You know, I had to get rid of it all and really I thought at the time I had torn the whole building out, including the foundation. Years later, I came to find there were still parts of the foundation that I had to, you know, get out. So I had to sort of do a second round. But all that's to say, I spent a lot of my 20s just sort of like an atheist, later tipping a little more towards agnostic, like there must be something out here. And then it was my close friend who was just like, oh, you should listen to this Abraham Hicks which is a big time Hay House author. And I listened to that and I was like, this is freaking cool. What is this? And I just dove in like off the deep end. Like I just started listening to that. I started reading about astrology and tarot cards and I had an Akashic Records reading and all this kind of stuff. And all of a sudden I was just like, there's these whole other ways to get to God. So many of those points you just stated are things that have impacted the way that I see the world and the way I show up in the world. And I was raised Catholic. I said to Nicole the other day, you know, I don't think I ever connected with religion. I would go to church. I would do the things. I had to go get my communion, my confirmation and all this stuff. But it was very much just sort of an overall school mentality where it was like stuff it and then flush it. Like when I don't need it anymore, I don't care. And I understand the values that people perceive to come from those things. And Obviously, I agree with some of them. They seem just like pretty straightforward moral right. moral things that we can all agree on. But I think that to be able to get to a place where you start shifting your perspective and asking yourself what else is out there is really important. And Abraham Hicks, as you mentioned, and then also for me, like philosophically, I started really diving into the concepts of sort of Zen Buddhism and Taoism and I'm not sure if you're familiar with Alan Watts, but I've listened to like all of his things because I find him fascinating. It's more about this higher consciousness and this ability to understand ourselves and to build connection with ourselves so then we can build connection with each other. And so those pieces of the puzzle that you just mentioned, I feel like it can be really daunting if you don't know anything about it. It can feel uncomfortable if you're not educated because let's be real, plenty of people will call some of this stuff woo-woo. and At the same time, it's like, what makes that less legitimate than the things that are very clearly not legitimate that people are preaching, right? Right. Totally. Um, So I'm curious from your role as an interfaith minister, because this is something that I was trying to explain when my wife, Nicole, asked me this. What does that exactly mean? And I was like, that's a great question. I don't think I have an answer for it. So (laughs) I don't want to detour too much, but I would love it if you could share what does it mean to be an interfaith minister and how is that really kind of applied in the work that you're doing in that role? Yeah, definitely. So I went to uh, One Spirit Seminary, which is in New York, and they're an interfaith seminary. And really what that means is, one, we studied many of the world religions. Certainly, I don't think you could anyone could study every and all of the religions, but we studied most of the major religions and we studied a lot of other smaller facets of things like A Course in Miracles, other just belief systems as well. But we studied Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, on down the list, Christianity. And 
that was just such a beautiful experience for me because one of the eye-opening things for me was just seeing how at the core of so many, really all of the religions, the core is the same. It's almost always about loving one another and often loving the earth and taking care of one another and all of those kinds of things. And so as I got further into that program, I just was like, this is how I lived my life. Like in these recent years, since leaving the church, when I found Abraham Hicks and beyond that, I kind of said, oh, there's a million ways to get to God. Like Mm -hmm. there isn't just one answer and one pathway. There's no one right pathway. And so I think in a lot of ways, that's what moves me as an interfaith minister is that I can talk to people from all different walks of life, from all different beliefs and backgrounds, cultures, and I can usually find some common space that we can overlap and share beliefs and share understanding. And it's also just about bringing that consciousness and healing, you know, to the world and knowing that being able to cross over this multitude of beliefs and culturals because of them, because, you know, a lot of places in the world where there is a different belief system, the culture is very different also. That's a really Um, good point. But being able to sort of blend between all those spaces, I think is what really has the potential to create so much healing in this world. I completely agree. The rigidity of just, it has to be this one way is what's gotten us to where we are now which, you know, stems back to what colonialism did and just taking over places and being like, hey, change your religion to our religion and just do what we want you to do. It's like, no, you know, like that doesn't, why? 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 (laughs) It's so funny that you said that, Alex, because we were talking about the generations and how the millennials really should have been called Gen Y because you've got got Gen X and then Gen Z on either side of it. And yeah. we were like, maybe it shouldn't be Gen Y. It should be Gen Y though. Like, why, why are we doing, why, why are we doing it this way? Because it seems like it's not really, it's not really working out for us, you know? And yes. I think what you raise as such a really profound point is that if you don't explore that there are other options, if you don't think to explore or you don't know that you can, because I know in some cases, especially growing up in an evangelical environment, having learned from my friends who have have left it and also just seeing a lot of content created is that you don't understand how deeply entrenched in it you are while you're in it. And no I doubt. Th- and the only way I can try to relate to that is having been in a very psychologically abusive relationship where it's like you're in it and you're just kind of doing what you need to do and you don't recognize that you're in some sort yeah. of survival mode because that's just the way that you're living your life. So how do you leave that and then have some sense of understanding about other things if you don't know what it feels like to really experience that in some way. I mean, that was one of the hardest things for me to override, right? Because it's like, I kept still coming back to all of these very indoctrinated belief systems that are stuck in my subconscious that still some days today come up that something surfaces that I'm like, whoa, I thought I worked on that. You know, like yeah. it kind of catches <laughs> yeah. me off guard. Yeah. So I remember as a little kid, like apparently it was maybe junior high or high school. Like I didn't want to play one of the sports teams because their mascot was like the devils. Cause my mom would say anything that's not Jesus is from the devil. That was their sort of thing. And so I guess what's funny, and I like to make this into a joke, but what I decided then when I found Abraham Hicks and started to sort of dive off what they would consider the deep end for sure, I recognized 
oh, my mom would think this is from the devil. And then I was like, I'm going to just find all the things that my mom would think is from the devil. That's essentially what transpired in my mind. You know, one of the practices I actually teach in the book is it sounds simple. It's not easy, but is to do the opposite. And so that's one of the things that I started really doing. Oh, if this would be super against what they would believe and what they would think that they would do, I'm going to just do the opposite. I'm going to do that, you know, kind of thing. And so in a way, I think that started to create a lot of the healing because then I didn't question it in the same way that I had questioned Christianity, where I was like, this is starting to feel like complete bullshit. If you're going to exclude people and keep people out. How can you say love one another? And then you're like, no, but not these people. Y'all aren't making sense, you know? But when I started to find all these other pathways that it was like, everyone's oneness, everyone is connected. Everyone is love. I'm like, oh, I can, I can get down with that. That seems real and true to me. And reasonable, right? And reasonable. It brings together the collective humanity. And I actually wanted to reference something that you said in our first conversation I'd made note of was that on the concept of oneness that you said, no one owns God, right? So to try to oust people from essentially the human community based on some righteous belief system that claims to be all loving, but doesn't actually facilitate that. Yeah. I mean, it's just so obviously hypocritical standing on the outside looking in. I understand how that doesn't feel like the case for people who are on the inside. But it reminds me also of something that I heard Marianne Williamson say recently, which was related to her presidential campaign. But I think it because she comes from such a spiritually minded place, it resonates in that same vein, which is that nobody has a monopoly on truth. And I feel mm-hmm. like that's such a, a valuable thing to consider is that yeah. we are allowed to experience what is true to us. And then we can find ways to navigate life where there's still harmony between people who are living different truths. Definitely. Definitely. And, you know, that we don't necessarily have all the answers. We can't possibly. (laughs) No. And that's what's sort of the stunning thing. Some of the evangelical groups I've known have been like Catholics aren't Christians, but that's that's also, I mean, it's definitely a branch of Christianity, no question about that. Exactly. I also understand how somebody who is deeply rooted in evangelical mindset would think that there is some substantial distinction there. As somebody who's not committed to either, I can say that they're close enough. (laughs) Agreed. Agreed. I'm always like, one is the Diet Coke of Christianity. So anyways, I'm speaking more to Christianity because that's also what I know. I don't necessarily you know, want to pick any fights on any other levels as an interfaith minister. But I will say I have no problem picking fights with Christianity. I will say that I think Christianity has this mindset that they know the right answers. You know, it's this whole thing that there is only one way to to God. And I think that that is such an ego-based idea. Like only the ego would say, I have all the right answers. Yeah. Our highest self, our spirit self would never claim there's one right thing to do. I think we're following our heart. We're following our gut. We're following what feels best, what feels right. That can change in any moment. So there can't be one 
Because in one minute, you could be like, oh, eating this tub of ice cream feels awesome. And two seconds later, like, I am going to get sick. I have to stop eating. This does not feel good anymore. I feel so, like you were in my house last night. It wasn't ice cream, <laughs> but I literally right before bed was like, I have eaten too much and I have regrets. Like, this is yeah. It, but I when like you were doing it, it. <laughs> like, you're like, this feels right and good. But that can change very quickly. There's mm-hmm. no one right way. And the other way I like to think of it, it's like Google Maps. When you punch in an address and you're going to Google, you're going to wherever your place is, Google's telling you where to go and turn here. If you get off the highway on accident or get, it's just going to reroute you. It might be like three hours later, but you're still going to get to the thing you were trying to go to. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really what would serve us better if we just approach life like that. And we're able to just say, I'll plug in my destination which is maybe just the end of this, which is dying in a yes. way. Who knows? That's kind of a fun thing to think about. And then you're just, or it's the next thing I'm trying to get to. Here's my destination. But then just take the path that feels right and good to you. And it doesn't have to be that there's only one right way to get to these places. That's healing for us, you know, to do that and to just keep following the path that feels right and feels like it's flowing for us versus I have yeah. to do it this way. Yeah, that's exactly what I think as well, especially just like the fluidity, right, is the more rigid we try to make things, the harder it is to actually, I think, feel connected to something. And the point that you made about, you know, sort of the rerouting to the destination, I would never have mapped the course of my life the way that it's gone. Okay. There's no scenario in which I've been like, these seem like the steps that I will take to have my utmost growth and become the best version of myself. Actively would have avoided a lot of the shit that contributed to the personal growth. Yeah. But to your point, without those moments of being rerouted, yeah, we wouldn't be forced to face some of the things that we do avoid inherently or that we feel we can kind of disregard because they don't seem as significant, only to find that those things linger. And they linger for as long as we let them. And yeah. I I feel like one of the things that you had said around just also allowing yourself to flow with it is this idea, there was a quote that I had read or heard somewhere that was like, what you resist will persist. And yeah. I really liked that because it makes me think about the times where even just a lot of it comes kind of from my past relationship because it was just so toxic and traumatic. And it's, I think about how I kept trying to justify why I should stay, right? I just kept yeah. like, I was resisting what my body was telling me, what my mind was telling me, what my environment was telling me, because I didn't want to be wrong or I didn't want to have to deal with the transition of my life to your point, exploding to some degree. But totally, it's, it's like, that's going to happen eventually. If you never, ever acknowledge it, it will come and it's going to be like a tidal wave because yeah. to me, one of the things I'm curious if you feel the same way about this, we had been listening to an audiobook, I think by this medium, Matt Fraser, and he had made a point about, you know, on this spiritual journey, if you are going in a direction that is not meant for you, the universe will reroute you, right? Yeah. Like, that's yeah. not what we wanted for you. So we have free will. So we will make decisions that are not aligned to our best path forward. But in a lot of ways, and whether we like it or not, 
we're going to get pushed in the direction that we should go if we open ourselves up to the possibility of that. And it required a ton of shit blowing up in my life to make the choice to finally move forward and to address the things I needed to address and look inward to, as you've been saying, heal those parts of myself that felt resistant to that change. And that goes for work and other things too. Do you feel like a lot of people are resistant to that type of personal growth primarily because of that fear of looking inward? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think no doubt, like people just, we're not taught how to do that. We're not taught at all how to do any of this stuff, really. We don't have any training on how to be in relationships. We don't have any training on how to be in relationship with ourselves, let alone diving beneath and looking at the things. My favorite example to use, you know, if someone cuts you off in traffic, it's really easy to just assume that's what it is and to just be angry at that guy. What a jerk. I can't believe he did that, blah, blah, blah. And just hold that and be angry and to even think that's what that was about. But you could go into so much deeper levels with that to try to figure out what's really under it. One, you could also decide that he did it for a different reason. Like instead of, oh, he's just an a-hole who doesn't pay attention to other people. The one I like to think is, oh man, like what if his wife's in labor and he's just like trying to get to the hospital? I feel so much better if I just assume that. Instead of assuming this guy's an asshole and cut me off and he doesn't care about the world and what a jerk. And then I'm just fuming the rest of wherever I'm driving to. Yeah. What good did that do? You know, and also how many times have we been that person and not thought also, about the fact that other people are probably like this asshole? What are they doing? And you're like, a thousand not percent. me though. Okay. No, definitely not. Not me. Not me ever at all. But the second part of that is making the conscious decision to look beneath the surface of that. The guy cutting me off in traffic is not even what I'm really upset about. I'm probably upset about something like, oh, I never feel like it's my turn. Yeah. I never feel like I have the right of way. But we don't look deeper. We just assume on all the surface levels, this is what it's about. And Mm. I promise you, fucking none of it's about that. (laughs) None of it. I don't think any of it is about that. It's all about deeper things. And I do just want to share one quote because I use this in the book, but it's also my really good friend who's a singer songwriter named Emily Scott Robinson. And and the quote is, if I'd seen the hills and valleys on the road, I might've never had the courage to pack my bags and go. And I just just got goosebumps. I love that. Yeah. What we were talking about that is just, if we knew what was ahead of us, we wouldn't have left the house. You know, we would have just been like, forget it. And yet I can say now from the perspective, you know, in my mid forties, I can look back and say, I'm so glad all of the stuff happened that happened, which is a struggle. I mean, coming through, coming out as trans and feeling like, God, yeah, this body has never matched what felt like was inside of me. Mm -hmm. Um, We all have enough body shaming in this world as it is uh, that most everybody feels. And then let alone to add in the feeling of this thing isn't even the right body that I'm in. Yeah, You know, that was a lot of struggle to come through, but coming through the realization that, oh, seeing myself as queer earlier on than seeing myself as knowing that I was trans, that afforded me the push That explosion that happened with my family that was spectacular, that pushed me like a rocket out of those experiences. And it propelled me into the life that I live now and to the person that I am now. And I would have never been able to do that if I was born just like a cis guy, like, say, my brother, 
I would just probably be doing what my brother is doing right now. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's not my life. Yeah. You know, it wasn't my life to live and this is my life to live. And so that took all of these things, this ultimate like transformation to push me. And I think that's also something I I speak about in the book is transformation does not happen in these easy little ways, right? Even if you think about transformation in nature, you know, a wildfire comes and burns at like the hottest temperatures to burn what needs to die off so that there can be rebirth. You know, thinking about like a blacksmith working with metal, which is like the hardest, one of the hardest substances in the world to bend and mold. It's like with the hottest heat that they can, you know, heat up. Yeah. That's how transformation comes. Transformation is not just like, think, okay, that stuff. I can transform now, you know, it's not, it's massive. It's sometimes literally devastating to the present form of who you are. Well, and to your perspective on reality. And I have to say something that you've done throughout this episode that I really appreciate and admire is how clearly you can articulate these concepts with very simplified analogies like the idea of the wildfire, the idea of a blacksmith being able to mold metal, right? These are things that you don't necessarily think about. And even it just made me think about, you know, the pressure required to create a diamond, right? Exactly. And the way you said it sort of pushed you out like a rocket. It was so similar for me. It was like, I knew I was going to leave this abusive relationship. Then my mom died really unexpectedly. And the part of me that was still wavering, knowing that I needed out of this situation, but not having really pushed through the discomfort of that was so undeniably necessary when I got to that point. And to be able to recognize that you're not doing anything wrong by navigating your path in the time that is right for you. And also if you feel it and you recognize that something needs to change, you will eventually have to sit with that discomfort because there's no amount of personal growth that is going to happen. If you can't look yourself in the eye and say, I want something different or I don't like who I am right now. Maybe you do like who you are, but you don't like your circumstance. And for me, it was kind of a combination of those things. I think for a lot of people, it tends to be that. And, you know, it really shows in the way that you express yourself when we're chatting here. And also when I had looked at your website earlier, the thing that stood out to me and that just felt so much like home to me is the idea of you have a, I guess, sort of your slogan possibly for the book or for your website or your personal mantra is that you yearn to remind people of who they are. And obviously the name of the show is who the fuck and the idea is like, who the fuck am I? Who the fuck are you? Like, what what are we doing here when why, right? And I think yeah. coming from that place of, you know who you are, you understand yourself better than anybody else. Even if it feels like you can't communicate that, you have to draw from that internal understanding and figure out how to manifest that outwardly to be able to achieve that growth. Do you feel like that's something that when you think about your own life and people that you've had conversations with, that it is that common thread of, I've always known that there's something else for me that has then propelled them into that next stage of life, into that emergence? Hmm. 
I mean, I think, yeah, maybe it's tapping back into that guidance system. Like we were talking back about the Jack Sparrow. There's so many people who they have this inner knowing that's been talked out of them. And they do need this sort of like awakening moment where they see something powerful that moves them, you know, which could be like art or music or a book that you read or even a movie Mm -hmm. or a conversation you have with someone who then you kind of have this light bulb that comes on where then you're able to be like, holy crap, this is like not the direction I want in my life. This is like all of a sudden I've got to go in this direction, you know? And I think a lot of times people have that moment where like the light bulb switches back on. And then we have that through, in a way, our shared storytelling, And that's why I think stories are so important. That's why it's so important for us all to tell our stories, because the truth of the matter is this. um, I can't do the work for you, right? Right. Even as a coach, even as a minister, I can't do the work for you. And you can't make somebody else do the work either. A thousand percent. Yep. No doubt. I can give you some ideas. I can tell you what's worked for me. I can sit with you. I can hold space for you. I can remind you of who I see. But you ultimately have to do that work and make that decision yourself. And what we can do together, though, is tell our own stories, Um, because in that shared storytelling is where I think it does give us the strength then to take that next step into that wholeness of who we are and, and remembering who we are. And that's why I think stories have always been throughout history, like recorded time. We have all known that like our stories have been so important to tell and to keep them. And we've had literal storytellers that have always passed along the lineage of our stories in all of our cultures throughout the whole world. And you know, that's one of the spaces I really love about working with people. And the reason that I have that tagline is really because for me, I guess, I've always had this innate ability, whether it's my intuition or whatever, but I've always just been able to see people. I've always been able to just look through that surface level thing and see what is below where they're going to excavate to. It might not even be who they recognize themselves as. I feel that. I feel that viscerally. That's something that I feel like I was the person that would always kind of make friends with somebody in a group that I clearly wasn't part of that group. But I'd be like, but I see you. And I don't think mm. you're part of this group either. <laughs> like, yeah, I, like, totally. I, like there's something within you that shines brighter than like you can maybe even see. Definitely. Definitely. And I've just always really had that ability. And in some ways, I've just now been able to apply it in larger ways, you know, hopefully by even the book that comes through to each individual reader as they're reading as well, that they feel seen and are able to heal some aspect of themselves from that. But also whenever I preach or do talks or have even one-on-one work with one person, I just try to bring that space to that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And gosh, I've just enjoyed this conversation so much. And I feel like this hopefully will be one of many. I am incredibly grateful. And as just kind of one last question for you here, How do you feel that this growth that you've experienced through your lifetime, but also in completing this journey of writing the book and just your overall intention to help people, how has that affected your relationship with your wife? Do you feel like that has also helped you to grow closer together? Oh, definitely. We both are very spiritually oriented, growth oriented people. We've known each other for almost 20 years and even in all of our years of friendship, we were sort of always the one that we like went to you like, oh my God, I read this book. It really helped me uncover some stuff. 
you have to read it and then we can talk about it. We've always just been so focused on like our own personal development and our own spiritual growth um, and evolution. So she's like definitely one of my biggest supporters and cheerleaders in all of this work. I mean, I wouldn't be here without her, even from the standpoint of our friendship. I certainly, the book wouldn't be a real thing. So, so much of my experience of even who I am, I probably wouldn't have even transitioned Frankly, I mean, she was like one of the first people in my life, like back in my late 20s, she said to me, don't you want to go by he? And I was like, I didn't even know that was an option. There was just this part of me that was like, what? You can do that? So every bit of growth and expansion that I've gone through individually, whether it's seminary, um, all the shamanic work and training I've done or writing the book, et cetera, you know, it's like all been all the more sweeter to share that with her and know that it was helping our relationship expanding both of us and our experience. And I'm so great, grateful for that. Plus, you know, she's more of an introvert and I'm much more of an extrovert. She loves when I'm on like a three hour podcast where I'm like talking to someone because I get a lot of that excess energy out and then she just gets the overview of it. Uh, so it works. It works great. Yeah, so, that's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> I can totally, I can totally grasp that. I'm the one who is really putting myself out there and wanting to, you know, constantly engage. And she wants to listen to the episodes, right? I come yeah. out of one of these and I'm like, oh my gosh, I want to tell you all about it. But then if I tell you all about it, then what you difference really does the listen. episode make to you? So, okay. Yeah. I'll tell you the bits and pieces that I really love or things that have come to me from just doing these conversations. And then you listen to the rest and tell me what you think. And then we can download on everything I wanted to tell you after that. Right. <laughs> awesome. I love it. Well, gang, that's all for this episode of Who the Fuck? To learn more about Alex's mission and purchase his book, What Needs to Be Said, visit alexregan.com. And Alex, can you tell people where they can find you on social? Yeah, you bet. Uh, you can just find me pretty much on all the socials at Rev Regs. So R-E-V-R-E-E-G-S, Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook are all my main go-tos. So you can find me on there. And yeah, it's just alexregan, R-E-E-G-A-N.com. Perfect. I appreciate you so much, Alex. I'm so grateful for this new friendship and for just this conversation. And I look forward to sharing another conversation with you again soon. And to listeners, catch you on the flip side. Thanks for listening to Who the Fuck. And if you like what you hear, share the show with your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else you think needs a healthy dose of introspection and raw authenticity. Feel free to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. It's always appreciated. And you can also visit whothefck.com to check out more content. Plus, you can follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at whothefck underscore pod to keep up to date with what's new in my world and for exclusive bonus content. Catch you on the flip side. Electric acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. 
show. Keep listening to Electric Cast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electric Cast.